The best advice is to stay really close to your potential customers so you can really understand what their pain points are and what the problem that you're solving is because they won't always be able to tell you exactly what it is and, and you learn a lot by observing them and trying to get to the underlying issue without necessarily doing exactly what they've asked for. Trying to do that as far into the growth of the company as you can. At, at some point, it, you know, it becomes harder and harder as, as their you know, company gets bigger, you get more customers, it's hard to spend a lot of time with, with each individual one. Dan Langevin, I'm co-founder and CTO at Veracruz. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart. Today, how Dan Langevin set out to disrupt an industry and seamlessly connect the flow of insurance data. All this and more on Code Story. Dan Langevin grew up in Madison, Connecticut, east of New Haven. He had a good-sized family, with his dad being an engineer and his mother being a teacher. He grew up around computers and learned how to build websites in high school. Post-college, he didn't think he wanted to be in tech, so he struck out into the field of consulting. It was during this time that he taught himself how to code, built a portfolio, and switched careers into tech. He's married with a two-year-old and another baby on the way. So free time doesn't really exist for him, but when he can, he likes to spend time outdoors reading and exercising. Dan and his co-founder started out building credentialing software, a sort of deep background check on doctors. In creating a way to scrape and pull in accepted insurance, they recognize a broader need for data to be more fluid in the space. It became obvious that a company needed to solve this problem for the space. This is the creation story of Veracred. Veracred is an API middleware company in the insure tech space. So that means that we connect insurance carriers really in the health and employee benefit space. So think medical, dental, accident, critical illness, disability, the, the types of insurance that you get through your employer with these different insure tech companies that are, are typically building kind of modern user experiences and want to interact with that data over an API. And the insurance carriers just haven't been able to, to build those APIs in any sort of standard way uh, that could be broadly used by the insure tech side. So we sit in the middle, we uh, have a, a single format where we're able to interact in, you know, with a modern API for those insure tech players. And then on the back end, we connect to the insurance carriers in whatever means they need, which oftentimes will be flat files like batch processes uh, and the like. So I was introduced to my co-founder, uh, Mike, who's our CEO, through a mutual friend actually, who was a, a co-founder at my previous company. And we just kind of hit it off. He had been in a tangentially related business and recognized the need for standardization in doctor data, provider data. Um, that's actually where we got started. I'll get into how we, we got into insurance a little bit after. The thing we, we initially started building was a credentialing platform. 
it's kind of deep background check that's done on doctors before they can practice at a hospital or take different types of insurance. Uh, and it's it's done in, in a, a fairly inefficient way. So that was what we originally set out to build. And we thought that we would kick that off by pulling in, scraping down data for all of the insurance that doctors take. And that would be, you know, the kind of a first building block. Uh, and then as we started to go out and sell that to the insurtech space, we just recognized this need, broader need for data transparency and fluidity in the space. And there were all these people who were kind of solving the same problem in, in you know, not the most efficient way. And it was really obvious that there was a need for a company to just solve that for the space. Well, tell me about the MVP. So that first product you built, how, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So we are a Ruby on Rails shop and have been since the beginning. Um, we worked with Pivotal Labs at the very early on. So I, I built a lot of uh, initial code base along with some of the engineers from, Pip, uh, from Pivotal. And we spent about four months building the very first version, which was pulling down public data that was fairly easily available, not any like super complicated scraping or anything at that point. And we built a, a demo site where we could show how shopping for an insurance plan using this doctor data and which insurance uh, networks and plans they accepted would look to an end user um, just using public data. It took us uh, you know, three to four months to kind of get to that MVP stage. So with any MVP, right, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, feature cut and what you're going to focus on, technical debt, things like that, right? Tell me about some of those decisions that you had to work through and how you coped with them. One of the hard things about any sort of MVP, especially if it's in a, a space where there isn't something that you're you're kind of chasing after that's already the standard, is deciding what what's in and what's out. Um, we took the approach of breadth over depth in our initial data set. So we took things that were fairly easy for us to access, so publicly available data from websites. Um, so, which meant that we couldn't, we could showcase the user experience, but there were a lot of edge cases that we, we couldn't really cover. Uh, and that wasn't the, the goal, to showcase the product that we you know, had out on the horizon, not, not necessarily to make it the most useful thing on, on day one. So then from that point, MVP is good. How did you progress the product from there and, and how did you mature it? And I think what, what I'm interested in most there is how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. We started out with this, what's a fairly specific and, and relatively small set of data around insurance carriers that a particular doctor accepts. We expanded that out to all the plans that an insurance carrier offers and how to how to rate those, so how to, to calculate the cost for an individual member. And then moved on from that to actually transactions around enrollment and member management. So this is a person has done this, this rating, they've gotten the rate, they want to buy the plan, and then they want to manage their policy either for an individual or for, for a whole group. So that, that was sort of the, the progression of the product itself. In terms of how we got there, there are a number of in inputs. The biggest is listening to customers. Uh, and a lot of that's pretty qualitative, right? You talk to leadership at other startups and you get a sense of where, where the real problems are. Uh, and early on, I think this is true for most companies, are the leadership teams of my, my co-founder and I were really heavily influencing 
the roadmap, we were sort of just deciding what goes in. And then as we built out a product team, we federated that out quite a bit. Now our, our product team is really responsible for building the roadmap and we, we kind of give it our blessing, um, but they're really doing most of the, the nuts and bolts of actually putting it together. Are you guys executing on an agile basis? Are you waterfall? Are you somewhere in between? Tell me a little bit about that. We're agile, so we do, you know, everybody has their own version of Scrum or, or Agile. Uh, what we do is is two-week iterations. We have roadmap work, which is the, the things that we've committed to for a given quarter. So we, we make roadmap commitments at the quarter level, and then we also build out uh, a rolling 12-month roadmap with a little bit less uh, specificity the, the further out that you go. And then we also have some kind of overflow for any sort of customer issues or urgent things that come up that we, we reserve some bandwidth for. But we deliver um, you know, more often than every two weeks. We deliver multiple times a day. Um, it's like CICD really throughout all of our deployment pipelines. Um, and so we're pretty automated there. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people that indicated that they were the winning horses to join you? Building out the team is is the most important and most challenging part, uh, really, of any early stage company. So it's a thing that I've spent a decent amount of time thinking about, and you know, gone through uh, some iterations of, of how we try to attract and and evaluate people. But the biggest things that we look for are curiosity and accountability. Curiosity is really we want people who are curious about the domain, curious about how things work, who want to know about the business and our customers and, and really just internalize what the company is all about. And that's sort of their, their default nature. A lot of engineers are that way naturally, so it's not a, um, you know, a huge selection uh, criteria, but it is a thing that we really emphasize throughout the, the uh, engineering interview process. And it's an important thing that we reiterate to the team um, really often. The second piece there is around accountability. So this is people who are committed to solve business problems and to get things done and, and to ship code. Are don't fall into perfect being the enemy of the good kind of thinking and are, are pragmatic and you know really want to deliver something that's going to actually make a difference for the business and for our users. Let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you grow? It's a a bit of each. So the way that I think about scaling, you know, from an efficiency perspective, it almost never makes sense to optimize for a hundred times or a thousand times your current volume. Uh, And there's, I mean, there are some exceptions to this, but pretty rarely does it make sense to do that because you usually don't know what the stress points are going to be. But at the same time, you don't want things to be about to fall over as soon as you put them out into production. So you need to give yourself enough of a buffer where you're able to figure out where those stress points are and then and optimize them as need be. We, we try to kind of walk the line there between things that um, you know, are going to create short-term problems. You know, we know that it's it's not scalable as we as we roll it out versus spending a ton of time solving optimization problems that might not be real when we actually get it into the wild. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? From a systems perspective, 
I think it is the boundaries that we've been able to keep between our various systems. So the, the architecture that the team has put together, I think is, is really strong and has held up very well, even as we've expanded into different product lines uh, and you know, added to the product offerings. You know, the challenge that we have is that we're taking a whole bunch of different formats, uh, working with different carriers. The, the system architecture is that we have one piece of code, one set of code that will really do handle all the standardization and coercion into a into a, a standardized format. And there's a contract between that and the rest of the system uh, that actually processes that data. Um, and keeping that contract really helped us to scale things out without creating too much maintenance load and you know creating sort of clear responsibilities across different teams as to you know what part of the process they are are responsible for. So and then in terms of the Overall, you know, company. I think it's really the team that we've built. Uh, we've built a really strong engineering team with a great engineering culture, and that is, you know, a small amount me and, and a lot amount uh, a lot of the team's efforts to find the right people and to build the right culture. So uh, I'm pretty proud about of that as well. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, there are a lot of mistakes <laughs> that that come to mind. Uh, and I think that you're never going to get everything right, especially not the first time as, as an engineer, as a leader, you know, as a person uh, in general. So, you know, there's a lot of mistakes that I've made in, in architecture and in code and in hiring even. The key to me about, you know, how your, your team responds to when you, you do make mistakes as a leader is that you have to take ownership of the mistakes and be transparent with the team and then come with the plan to resolve it. Uh, you know, as the leader, the, the team is, is looking for you to set out a course to, to resolve whatever the issue is. They're not looking for you to be perfect, but they do want you to be authentic. And I found that as long as I'm upfront and I say, you know, I made this mistake or I made this decision and it was not the right decision, um, the team is, is supportive and will help develop a plan to fix it. Well, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? Yeah, we're growing really quickly. We've more than doubled the product and engineering team in the last year. We expect to see growth across the whole organization this year. Today, we're supporting shopping for insurance, plan discovery and administration of policies, which is actually a pretty big surface area to cover. So a lot of the expansion for the company is just in more of these integrations, deeper integrations, uh, supporting more functionality within those integrations. Um, but one area in particular that we're, we're pretty excited about is insights into usage of a user's policy. So this is knowing how much is left on your deductible and being able to, to surface that through different tools that a user might interact with, uh, or someday maybe a little further down the line, claims and the status of different claims. So some you know, pretty, pretty interesting user experiences that our customers can ultimately build uh, on top of that kind of data. Let's switch to you, Dan. Who influences the way that you work? You name a CEO, CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why. From an engineering perspective, there are sort of the usual suspects, the Martin Fowlers, uh, Kent Becks kind of of the world that I've spent a fair amount of time reading what they write and use that to influence uh, kind of design. 
But from a, the real world perspective, I think my, my biggest influence is the, uh, the CTO group uh, that I'm in, which is a peer group through uh, a company called Venwise. Uh, it's based in New York. And they have a really great program where we meet every other week, you know, anywhere between six and 10 CTOs in similar stage companies. And you just kind of talk about problems you're having, get advice from peers. You know, one of the things in any sort of leadership position that's challenging is you don't always have a peer inside your organization to, to bounce ideas off of. Uh, sort of People are looking to you for the answers. So it's a great way to get feedback and, and get ideas from people who are in a similar situation. So, okay, we talked about a mistake, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? From a product perspective, there's not one big obvious thing that stands out to me there are lots of little things that we you know we doubled down on the wrong feature at the wrong at, you know the wrong time or it wasn't the right feature to begin with um, there's, there's a lot of little stuff like that but i think the bigger change i would make is in the way we approach product marketing early on uh, we were very technology focused and the thing that i've learned in building veracred is that the way you talk about the technology is just about as important as how well it works. So I, I think we would have focused more heavily on product marketing sales enablement earlier in the company's journey. Okay, Dan, well, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? For someone just getting started, I, I think the best advice is to stay really close to your potential customers so you can really understand what their pain points are and what the problem that you're solving is. Because they won't always be able to tell you exactly what it is and, and you learn a lot by observing them and trying to get to the underlying issue without necessarily doing exactly what they've asked for. And I think that's trying to do that as far into the growth of the company as you can at, at some point it, you know, it becomes harder and harder as as their you know, company gets bigger you get more customers it's hard to spend a lot of time with with each individual one but try to retain some of that because really a lot of your your best ideas come from those kind of interactions well, that's great advice well dan thanks for being on the show today thanks for telling the creation story of veracred all right thank you for having me and this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. 
Save me.